Hello and welcome back to the Tez News Podcast. Each week on this podcast, I catch up with some of our brilliant reporters and writers here at Tez as we discuss the stories they think should be in the spotlight that week. A little bit later on in this episode, I'll be joined by senior editor Dan Worth as we take a look at how One Trust is looking to weather the financial storm and how Nick Gibbs' £14.9 million languages drive could be falling short. But first, I'm joined once again by reporters Callum Mason. Callum, welcome back. Hiya. Hiya. Thanks for having me on. Hi. And Matilda Martin. Matilda, welcome back. Hey. So I guess the stories this week kind of basically chose themselves. Of course, we, along with everyone else in the world of education, have been eagerly anticipating Jeremy Hunt's autumn statement and speculating as to what that might mean for the education sector. The statement came out on Thursday, and the headline for us, of course, is that the government's going to invest £2.3 billion per year in schools over the next two years. So instead of being ideological, I'm going to be practical. Because we want school standards to continue to rise for every single child, we're going to do more than protect the school's budget. We're going to increase it. And I can announce today next year and the year after, we will invest an extra £2.3 billion per annum in our schools. Our message to heads and teachers and classroom assistants is thank you for your brilliant work. We need it to continue. And in difficult economic circumstances, a Conservative government is investing more in the public service that defines all our futures. One thing that I guess we'll be getting to a bit later is that there's a sense, I guess in his wording, that this money should temper possible industrial action uh, bubbling under the surface at the moment. First of all, though, Callum, is this money just a pleasant surprise for schools? Yeah, well, I think in the context of what we've seen over the past few months, it is a pleasant surprise. I don't think it was expected. And I think a lot of leaders of unions, a lot of leaders of schools are going to be going to be quite happy to see it. So as we said there, it's, it's 2.3 billion in extra funding over two years. So that's in 2023 to 24 and 24, 25. But it's actually, although it's 2.3 billion on paper, it's actually really 2 billion compared to the prior plans because a small amount of that extra money, 0.3 billion, uh, was going to be given to schools to pay for the health and social care levy, um, which most people will know as national insurance payments. And as the planned rise was reversed, um, that's no longer going to them. So it's so it's a two billion pound rise over two years. And I think in in terms of what that does, I mean, obviously it's hard to envisage at such massive figures, but to put it into context, it will allow school spending to return to 2010 levels in real terms. So that's in, in terms of once you've factored in the actual costs that schools face, um, which doesn't sound, I mean, when you say it's going back to 2010 levels, that's 12 years ago, it doesn't sound great. Um, but this was sort of a key pledge that was made by Rishi Sunak when he was chancellor a few years ago that, that, that school funding would return to these levels. Um, so I think actually it reaching those levels is is in a way a symbolic moment. And I think it's, for some school leaders, they'll, they'll be quite happy to see it mm. compared to what they maybe expected, which was, was possibly further cuts. I think those were, were muted. Yeah, I guess one of the lines I saw a couple of times, and it was from a couple of different experts commenting on this money, was that the devil is in the details. So yeah, is this money everything that it, it seems it is? 
Well, yeah, let's look at a little bit of the details. So obviously this comes next year and the year after. That's when we thought schools were really going to start struggling. Um, but, you know, a lot of schools are facing facing challenges this year, whether that be be teacher pay issues or, or energy prices going up. So they are going to have to, have, I've spoken to a few sector leaders who have said schools are going to sort of have to muddle through the rest of this year. And I think that is important. I think Although we're saying this extra funding is good, I think let's let's remember that schools are going to face some difficulties this year. And I think in terms of the detail of, of how that money will be we rolled out, whether it will be all in the national funding formula, I think that is detail that the unions and school leaders will be looking out for as well and will be looking out for too. Mm. I, I, I mentioned earlier that there's this threat of industrial action kind of bubbling under the surface before this announcement. Maybe it's probably more accurate to say that it was kind of reaching boiling point. Um, Matilda, has the awesome statement helped to, to simmer that down at all? Um, on the surface, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say so. So obviously after the autumn statement uh, came out, was, was announced yesterday, did, did reach out to uh, you know, leader unions, so NEHT and ASCO, uh, to, to see if, if that would be something that would affect their reasoning behind the ballots. I think for leaders' unions, you know, that they're looking at both pay and, and funding. You know, it's, it's also about, you know, the teachers that work in their schools um, rather than, than just themselves. I think at the moment, no, there's no immediate reaction. I mean, you know, ASCOL have launched their consultative ballot today as planned. Uh, the conversations that I've had with the unions yesterday very much, you know, we're going to push on as planned um, and, you know, we'll constantly be engaging with with members. So if our members now say, you know, we don't want to strike anymore, then, you know, that they'll be listening, listening to them. But from just from kind of conversations that I've seen on on social media today so far, uh, you know, a lot of leaders, you know, NEHT members, ASCO members are saying, you know, this isn't going to make a difference to the way I vote. Um, you know, one one leader was saying, you know, I think similar to what what Callum was saying, you know, we're only kind of getting gonna get back to to funding levels of of like 12 years ago, really. So, you know, this makes no difference to the way they feel. I can't talk for everyone, obviously, but um I think immediately, no, um, this isn't going to affect uh strike uh strike potential strike action unions and also NEU, definitely not. Um, they very much said they're pushing on. And I think as well, Matilda, you mentioned there that ASCOL are continuing with this consultative ballot, which is launching today. I think Jeff Barton was quite clear yesterday when he when he sort of reacted to the, the money. So Jeff Barton, obviously the General Secretary of the Association of School and College Leaders, when when he was reacting, he was saying in some ways it was it was positive this this announcement, but he was he was quite clear and wanted to point out that it it comes in the context of a decade of spending yeah. going down. So I think sort of an immediate thing like this with with an extra two billion or whatever being put in per year. It looks good on the face of it, but I think he was quite keen that we set it and and people who are looking at the budget set it in in context of what we've seen for the past 10 years. So I think I think that sort of has probably played into that decision, um, Matilda as well. I don't know if you agree. Yeah, de- definitely. Yeah. And I think as as well, it, it doesn't really solve the other issues as well that are going on in the sector at the moment. You know, ma- massive issues with recruitment and retention as well. Um, and, you know, ge- general pay as well. I mean, you know, while we know that, you know, there is increased funding for next year, there's now 
you know, concerns about what public sector pay is going to look like, you know, for projections over the next few years um, because of, of this autumn statement. So I think, yeah, on the surface, you know, could be positive unions, but they're definitely still pushing on with, with their balloting. Yeah. And, mm. I th- and I think when we talk about pay as well, um, obviously a 5% increase this year, wasn't it? But there was a letter that went from Gillian Keegan earlier this week to the independent body which sets teacher pay as well. And this was sort of, it's not to tell them what to do because they're independent, but it really sets the remit of of what they do. And some wording that was in that was about sort of being aware of the government inflation target, wasn't it? Which is is 2% basically. And that's not to say that teacher pay will be 2% next year, but it sort of, it suggests that they're going to not be able to get a massive pay rise next year, doesn't it? Definitely. I mean, well, it would be interesting as well to see what the STRB does, because obviously this year they actually, you know, went against the recommendations of of the education secretary and, you know, went for a much higher percentage pay increase than recommendations for much higher percentage increase than had been recommended by Zahawi, who was education secretary at the time. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it'd be interesting to see if STRB listen um, to, to that recommendation. I think we're hearing back in May, so it'll be a while before we know. Yeah, we've got a, yeah. got a little while to find out. Yeah. It, it, it's almost kind of unprecedented, isn't it, the strike action? Mm-hmm. I, I think you, you touched on it a bit earlier, Matilda, but I've, I've also I've seen so many teachers on Twitter kind of express their disappointment that it's, that it's come to this. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that is the general feeling amongst teachers. You know, no one wants to go on strike, especially after the last, the context of the last, you know, almost three years now, I guess, of, um, of, you know, pandemic and disruption. But I think the general feeling is, you know, if they don't take this stand, then the issues that we're seeing in the sector are going to continue. And actually the long-term impact on, on students is going to be even worse um, than it would be if they just, you know, didn't take any action. Um, I think, yeah, any HT, this is the first time the balloting members on strike action were paid for like it's 125 year history so that's pretty pretty huge um but i think also it's really interesting to see all the unions coming together as well i mean i don't think we've seen anything like this before and a lot of indications from you know the indicative ballots do you know suggest unless we see any further changes that there is going to be support for strike action um so yeah definitely seems to be all coming to a to a point and I think we've seen the, the impact as well that the unions and the professional associations can probably have. Like, we, we can't say that yesterday's announcement was entirely down to them, but, mm. but you know, ASCOR, NAHT, the Confederation of School Trusts, they've all been, they've all been sort of banging the drum for more funding for, for months now. Definitely. And I think you'd be hard pushed to say that yesterday's announcement wasn't in part down to that campaign. And so we've sort of seen the impact that they can have. Definitely. Yeah, I, I think there was definitely some, like I touched on at the start, definitely some of the way that uh, Jeremy Hunt worded that that announcement that sounded as though it was it was trying to stave off this action. There was definitely a lot of like, we're coming together and we're asking you to work through these hard times, these financially difficult times. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, we don't really know what the result of, you know, if we do go for strike action, we don't know what the result will be. Um, whether it will have any direct impact on, you know, pay or, or funding. Um, but I think definitely, if, if if nothing else, I think a lot of people I've spoken to will say it's just going to, you know, if if nothing else, help to 
raised, you know, the point amongst the general public, the issues that schools are facing, um, because it is something that I think does go unnoticed by a lot a lot of people. Yeah, it's, it's worth saying as well that um, strike action can mean a broad range of things, can't it, until it doesn't necessarily mean, mean schools are going to close, right? Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah, it could, it could mean, you know, I mean, I think for leaders it could be, you know, joining a picket line for an hour in the day, or it could mean kind of, I think the term is a go slow. So just, you know, working much slower than usual, only working to contracted hours. So, you know, it's, you know, old school ends at three, I'm going to leave the school grounds at three. There have even been suggestions of not engaging with Ofsted um, inspections. Mm. So yeah, there's a whole, whole range of, of things that it could mean. It doesn't necessarily mean everyone walking out of the school at once. Yeah, because I guess that is a concern for for teachers when they're when they've got these ballots in front of them. That you know they they're so wholly dedicated to providing this kind of invaluable mm-hmm. service for our children, but they feel kind of pushed now to this this breaking point, right? And even the general secretary of the NAHT, Paul Whiteman, he came out with a video on Twitter, kind of urging teachers to put aside those fears, reassuring them that they will be supported if they vote yes on these ballots. I'm really proud to be the General Secretary of a truly democratic union. This is really important because I know you're nervous about voting yes for action shorter strike and even more nervous about voting yes for strike action. You're safe in the hands of the National Executive Committee. They are all serving school leaders and they understand what it means to be asked to do things. You're in safe hands. Vote yes and vote yes. Matilda, that is definitely something teachers are worried about, isn't it? Yeah. And I think it doesn't necessarily mean that support for the community is going to end. You know, there's a, you know, if we think about during the pandemic when, you know, the majority of students moved online, even though we had teachers in schools still working and still teaching, you know, we had teachers delivering food parcels to people's doors and then checking in on, on the most vulnerable. And I think that leaders are definitely already starting to think about, you know, if we do have to close, what provision can we provide to the community in terms of continuing that support, especially at the moment as we head into you know, a winter where things are looking like they're going to get pretty grim. Mm. Well, it's not, it's not the best reading, but I guess there is, like we said, there is that pleasant surprise to the, to the money in the first place. Uh, thank you both, Callum and Matilda, for, for making sense of these stories, keeping us all up to date. And of course, thank you for taking the time to join me today on the TES podcast. I know it's been a fairly busy time keeping up with all of these, all of these stories. Thanks for having us. Excellent. Thanks for having us on. So for our next story, we're continuing on that trend of money, money, money. Of course, if we had the budget to purchase the licensing for the ABBA song, we would be playing it right now. But as with everybody else, budget's a little bit tight right now. As we were discussing earlier in the pod with Matilda and Callum, schools across the land are feeling this financial pressure from energy and catering costs to unfunded pay rises. I don't think there's any escaping the current financial storm. In the article we're going to talk about now, Andrew Morehouse, CEO of the Primary First Trust, outlines the efforts that they're undergoing at several of their schools to help weather this storm. Senior editor Dan Worth is back with me today to discuss this story. Dan, welcome back. Hello there. I think, Dan, one of the great things that he's done in this article is to divide these solutions into short-term, medium-term and long-term solutions. So I guess let's start with those short-term solutions, Dan. What are some of these quick wins? Yes, you're right. It's nice the way it's laid out. And I think it sort of gets to the heart of what, what you can do because he makes the point that, you know, 
the, the sector is adaptable and adaptable and resilient, and um, it, it's not going to just all go, well, woe is us, and then not do something, do what it can anyway. You know, it's right that they're raising the concerns, and obviously we saw the, the budget, as you, as you talked about, but he talks about some of the practical things you can do here. So like in short-term solutions, he says, you know, they've lowered their thermostats by a notch, and that's actually helped save eight, as much as 8% on their heating costs without compromising on comfort. And so again, that's a little thing. You might maybe they can go to 2%. Um, but it's like, you know, you add up a trickle over trust. So they get across trust wide, you know, you're, you're making a saving there. And he says they actually, you know, it's through a building management system. So it's, it's a passcode on it. So people can't turn it up again. Um, obviously, it's pretty helpful in a very mild November. But that's quite a practical thing, is it? He says, well, they turn their radiators off earlier now um, so that they run on the residual heat within them to boost through to the end of the day, the school day. So again, you think you turn your thermostat down, you produce while you're using it. Something that's two quite good things over a course of, in months and days and months adds up. It's quite a good saving. Um, they're also looking at where they can reduce energy usage and waste. And the last thing I like, thing I like is where he talks about because they have charging stations in their schools that can be used for charging one-to-one devices, which is quite a common thing. But they now make sure they're always turned off when they're not needed, and that's resulted in a forty percent reduction in cost, saving five thousand pounds a year. Now, five thousand pounds—it sort of sounds like a lot and nothing at all, doesn't it? In the grand scheme of things. But again, you think it's like it's all those incremental savings. They're all going to help. They're all going to help. It's £5,000 you can at least put in something more important, should we say. And that then kind of feeds into some of the medium and long-term things that we're going to go on to talk about as well. Yeah, it does seem like there's some really kind of like surprisingly large savings mm. from really small incremental changes there. Yes, yes, that's what I thought when I saw it. I thought, you know, and again, it's almost like... And one, one thing I wonder is if in, in the course of this next few, this period we're in and going through, while it's not... I'd hesitate to say it's a silver lining. It might be interesting, mightn't it? And quite instructive to trusts and schools where they realise that well, actually, we were just spending this money because we because you know, we weren't really being forced to look at where we could save money so much. Whereas now everyone's going to be really looking at the bottom line. Actually, going forward, you might think, well, let's make sure we don't go back to spending that money, you know, wasting that money, shall we say? Because actually, we don't need to have the radiators staying on until long after the children have left or whatever it might be. And that will save money. Then you've got, at the end of the year, well, actually, we've saved a bit more. You know, we could put that money into more, you know, more educational activities rather than, you know, charging, leaving your device charging units on over the weekend. Well, it's actually, why were we doing that? Because you weren't really forced to think about it. And I think that goes into some of the sort of medium-term and long-term things he talks about, which is like, you know, looking at your procurement strategy, reviewing your recruitment policies about, you know, do we need to recruit this year? Can we delay a year? Can we, you know, could we change that role to make it two-in-one and more cost-efficient? Now, again, I know some of that, People might hear that and think, well, that's that's not good. But it's more like, well, that's the reality we're in. And so his his piece, I think, is quite open-eyed and saying, well, look, these are things we're doing now. These things we're looking at for the medium term. And then even long term, looking at things like energy resilience, resilience and can they have solar panels or, or uh, wind turbines, ground source heat pumps? You know, if, if you bring these things in now, yes, you may not start seeing huge financial savings tomorrow. But for the long term, for the future of your school, you know, we know being renewable, being more energy self-sufficient is something that we're probably going to have to do in this country. And it's, it's strange in a way that that isn't higher on the agenda more broadly from government, maybe. But again, you think you know, the schools, number of trusts, if they all start doing this, they start thinking, look, we're going to have to do this at some point. And if it helps us start saving money now or in the years to come, worth exploring. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uncertainty going forward. We could be facing these financial mm. pressures for, for years to come. So of course, this long-term planning, even this short-term planning, Getting these kind of processes in place will only put us in, put these schools in better stead for, for those years. Yes, absolutely. 
Okay, moving on then. Uh, one area of education that we'll be seeing an injection of cash is modern foreign languages. Of course, Nick Gibb launched a £14.9 million languages drive. However, as Professor Geraint Jones writes for us this week, unless there's more to it, that could be little more than a marketing initiative. So I guess the question, Dan, is does MFL need a marketing initiative? Is one of the main issues with MFL in this country that it needs selling? Mm. Well, yes. I mean, there's a, there's a lot to this, isn't it? Like the extra cash, again, no bad thing, you'd say. And it's a commitment to modern foreign languages, which are, you know, have, have been for several years, like, you know, not had the t- kind of take up that the government wants, particularly around the EBAC, where the MFL is always the thing that's holding back their quite high EBAC targets. You know, Gronje Halland has written on that topic a couple of times for us and, and most recently had Nick Gibb before he came back into the, the fold saying he thinks schools should have to be hitting their EBAC targets to uh, achieve a good offset outcome. Um, but what Gary Jones mm-hmm. is saying in this piece is that yes, money is good and it, you know, let's not, let's not sort of be dismissive of that, but really the actual teaching of MFL will needs a radical overhaul. If you're actually going to convince students to take it, he talks about, you know, we need to make it clear about the context of learning languages and, and why they should learn it about how it's taught and why what has to be more than just a sort of a set list of phrases and stock phrases um it needs to be actually about learning that it's a way to express yourself and how you use that within you know use a new language to do that obviously within that language and sort of that can feed into other areas of life he talks about how we need to embed it earlier in children's education even to the early years setting but of course that will require an upskilling of early years staff and that kind of then feeds back into gcse's for then then when those children come out and go and work in earlier settings and he also talks about why he thinks it shows again this need for a two-year training course, not a one-year training course, because you could then build more mm. time in yep. for language teaching. I've sort of whistle-stopped through his points there. Um, <laughs> and I expect you might, maybe you want to sort of bring them up yourself. So I apologize if I've done that. But, but I think it, it's an interesting one, one sort of leads into the other. It's, it's quite a compelling argument because you don't want to get more money to sort of boost it. Great, but really, doesn't it? Don't we have to come from the ground up at this? Yeah, and I think he makes a really good point during that. He, he draws on some of his own experiences of learning language as as uh, he learned Welsh and English and and how, you know, for people in other countries or children in other countries, they have this kind of uh, incentive almost from kind of world media, English world media to learn English and they learn it so early and that that language class is almost supplementary to the, the way they, they learn outside of the classroom. And we don't have that. So I guess he talks that he talks about this ground up, this way of building from the ground up mm. as kind of a way of, of building that into our modern fa- foreign languages uh, classes. Right. Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, I suppose there is that sort of benefit that other nations have whereby because English is such a world language and, and media, like you say, music, film, TV, you know, a lot of it is, is in English, and even if it, you know if it's dubbed or if it's subtitled, or whatever. You're, you're, or if it's subtitled, sorry, you're going to still hear it while you read the language. You know, there's so much more immersion in it. But I think his point is clear, though: is we could do more ourselves in this country to bring that into our classrooms, and, and particularly from a young mm-hmm. age. Um, and it's almost more. It, it feels a little bit like this, so that's a cultural thing as much as anything else. And so when you sort of take everything, his points here, when you look at the fact that government, you know, to their credit, clearly does value MFL. It does what, you know, has high targets for it within the EBAC. So there's no lack of sort of desire from the government to make people want to learn languages. But obviously there's a mismatch going on between that desire 
what you can do with languages. You know, he was a, uh, Garan was a German teacher by trade. So, you know, he's got a real, you can tell he's got a, sort of a, a desire and passion here for language, but something's not getting through to the study of it. And there's also the issue of it's harder to achieve very good, a high grade in MFL at GCSE compared to other subjects. And that can put children off because if they want to go to university, they might look at it, well, I've got, you know, it's easier to get a good grade in other subjects. You know, the data bears that out. So there's a lot going on here, but I think it's important. I think that's why this piece is so sort of important now is because more money, you think, oh, great, more money going into something. Well, that that must hold the problem, right? Yeah. And and the piece is sort of saying, maybe we need another, to take another look at this and rethink how we're teaching it. Of course, both of these articles, as always, can be found on our website, test.com forward slash magazine. If you're interested in looking at some of those kind of money-saving initiatives mentioned in the first article, if you've got a particular interest here in modern foreign languages, of course, this, uh, this second article is definitely one you should go and check out. Dan, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you.